For Profiles, this is Peter Jacoby. Our guest in the studio today is Charles Latshaw, artistic director and conductor of the Bloomington Symphony Orchestra. Uh, He's been so for six years, and in that time has strengthened the orchestra's craft and vision immeasurably. This young man, however, not only conducts, but plays a mean trumpet, sings, acts, teaches, makes cheese, bakes bread, hikes, camps, skis. Obviously, he's a well-rounded guy. Uh, I want to pursue some of those activities, particularly the musical ones, sure. in the hour ahead. Charles, welcome Hi, thank you, to Peter. the studio. As leader of a community orchestra, how do you see your duties uh, What's special, what's important uh, for you uh, to try to accomplish? Well, the difference, I think, between a community orchestra and, say, a professional orchestra, the difference between the Bloomington Symphony and the Indianapolis Symphony is that I have two primary audiences I'm concerned about at all times. For me, my main audience is the people sitting in front of me, the orchestra, and then a secondary audience are the people who bought tickets to come to the concert. But because the Bloomington Symphony members are all volunteers, they need to be happy first. Uh, If we don't serve that audience of the orchestra first, then that audience doesn't come back and then we no longer have an orchestra. And so that's a concern that comes up with a community orchestra that doesn't come up with a professional orchestra where they're paid to be there. Uh, They're not always going to be happy about what they're playing, but they're going to show up and they're going to do it because it's a job. But the flip side of that is the people who are in the Bloomington Symphony or in any community orchestra are doing it because they love it. And they have a very altruistic, true idea of why they want to be in an orchestra, and that's to play great music, great music, great pieces of music, and to do it as well as they can. Well, you mentioned the Indianapolis Symphony that you work with it. And I know that the Vienna Philharmonic mm-hmm. is on your resume, too. So there you're working with pros. Right. Take us to the podium at one of those two places and the podium at the Bloomington Symphony. What are the differences? Uh, there's one very striking difference uh, that you find between an amateur orchestra or a student orchestra and a professional orchestra at almost any level, and that's that – Amateurs or young people or students want to rush all the time. The orchestra gets faster and faster and it piles on itself and it runs away from you. Professional orchestras do exactly the opposite. They want to drag. They want to go slower and they want to dig in and find everything in the music. And so that's an instant change a conductor has to make. Uh, You get in front of the orchestra and you find out right away, does this orchestra want to rush or does this orchestra want to drag? But... The difference uh, between, say, Vienna Philharmonic and Bloomington Symphony is that there isn't a whole lot I would need or want or have to say to the Vienna Philharmonic about what we're doing. Instead, it's more of a an issue of standing there and smiling and letting them be who they are uh, and not stepping in the way uh, at all. Uh, with something like Bloomington Symphony, a lot of the ideas come from me uh, because... I've thought about the music hard. I've thought exactly what I want. And many of the musicians are thinking about still just trying to play the instrument, trying to figure out how to get the right notes to come out at the right time. And therefore, I'm adding 
the why, the what is this music supposed to tell us? Why are we playing this piece? Why do we put these two pieces together? Why is this loud here and why was it soft there? All of that stuff comes from me with an amateur orchestra. So uh, in many ways, working with uh, an amateur or a student orchestra or even a, a middle regional professional orchestra is a lot more work uh, and a lot more pressure than working with a great professional orchestra uh, where the orchestra is going to sound great no matter what I do. It's just uh, an issue of of trying to make sure that the performance with a great orchestra fits in the hall or for the audience or for the piece. But the expectations are different, aren't they? I don't think so. I My expectation is that no matter how great we perform, how no matter how great I conduct or how great the, the last chair second violinist plays, we can always do better. That's kind of the... The magic of music is that there's no limit to what great really is. Uh, there are differences of opinion, but there's no such thing as perfect. Um, and and for me as a musician, it's always been the case for me as a trumpet player uh, in college or, or the other musical endeavors is no matter how hard I work and no matter how good I get, there's always somebody better to look up to. So my expectations are the same, that uh, I work very hard, and I expect the orchestra, whether they're paid or not, to work very hard, too. Well, I'd like to get to here, how you got to here, uh, your childhood, how you moved into music, first yeah. of all. I'm uh, what I would call a first-generation musician. Uh, there aren't any other musicians in the family that uh, my mother— uh, made all of her children take piano lessons when we were young. There are three of us. I have a sister who's six years older and a brother who's who's four years older. Um, we all took piano lessons because my mother felt like she had missed out on something in her childhood. So I studied uh, Suzuki piano lessons from the age of six to about eight. Um, Suzuki as I understand it, is is really intended to have parents involved in the musical education and, and that sort of thing. Because none of my parents or anybody else in the family is a musician, that didn't really happen. Suzuki was scary and frustrating for me as a child. Uh, and then I took piano lessons from Mimi Williams. Uh, Mimi um, was a wonderful teacher, uh, didn't push me, let me do whatever I wanted on the piano. Most of the time, uh, I was playing piano after dinner to get out of doing the dishes. I would run to the piano and I would play. Uh, I still have them on the shelf in my office. Um, two giant anthologies of Billy Joel uh, and one anthology of Elton John and two anthologies of Beatles music is what I would play at the piano almost every night after dinner. Uh, I started playing the trumpet in the fifth grade. The trumpet is an instrument I chose because I knew I wanted to play either trumpet or clarinet. Uh, and I went to the little instrument fitting day they do for kids. Uh, and the band director put a trumpet in my hands first. And that's why I was a trumpet player. Uh, if the band director had put a clarinet in my hands first, I'm sure I would have been a clarinetist. So in high school, I was acting in plays and singing in choirs. Uh, and uh, I was active in a lot of things. I was class president in high school and uh, and did a lot Where of Where was this? Uh in Sylvania, Ohio. Uh I went to school at Sylvania Southview. It's also the alma mater of Chip Davis of Mannheim Steamroller fame. Uh he's our big 
musical uh, alumnus from Southview. So uh, when it came time to go to college, I knew I wanted to be a music major. I didn't really know what being a music major meant. I thought I was going to sit in a practice room every evening and play Billy Joel tunes is really what I thought I was going to do. I auditioned on the trumpet because I happened to have a solo ready to go for auditions. So uh, I auditioned at a few schools and went to The Ohio State University uh, because everybody in my family had gone to Ohio State and it had never occurred to me that there were differences between schools and that some schools of music were good at some things and others uh, were different at others. Uh, and I went as a music education major on the trumpet, and I, my career goal at the time was to be a college band director uh, is what I wanted to do. Uh, but while I was in college, uh, I started going to Columbus Symphony concerts every weekend. They had student rush tickets were $6 for any seat in the house. Uh, and I think they're still about that inexpensive in Columbus. Uh, and I went there every single weekend and discovered a whole world of music beyond what I'd been exposed to. That uh, I was in love with band music, but I was in love with you know Percy Granger and Ralph Vaughan Williams and and you know Philip Sousa. And then I discovered there were that those guys are great composers, but there are so many more out there who've been writing for orchestras for hundreds of years. So uh, by the time I finished college, I knew I wanted to be an orchestra conductor. Uh, but that's not where I ended up right away. Um, that I moved to New Hampshire following a girl who's now my wife. Uh, she and I met in music history class as undergraduates. Uh, and I, my first job out of college was teaching. I taught junior high general music grades 7 and 8. I taught choir grades 7, 8, and 9. I taught beginning band grades 4, 5, and 6. Uh, it was tough. I did that for a few years. Um, it was tough, but I learned that if you can get a choir of 200 seventh graders on stage and get them through a song and then get them off stage again without any injuries, you could do just about anything. Uh, I haven't had stage fright or nervousness about a first day of work ever since. <laughs> that, that cured you, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then in 2004, two things happened um, in pretty quick succession. The first was that I realized I hadn't been meant to be a trumpet player. I um, was playing trumpet in a, in a couple of orchestras around New England in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. And... I very clearly remember a rehearsal one one evening with, with the Nashua Chamber Symphony in New Hampshire, uh, counting rests in Mozart's Hafner Symphony and thinking, this isn't what I thought I'd be doing with my life or with my music. This, this just doesn't fit me. And I looked around the orchestra and realized that I had always been meant to be a cellist. Uh, hmm. It's just that I'd never played the cello outside of when I was a music ed major, took a, a quarter of lessons on, on the cello. So I went and rented a cello the next day and, and played seven, eight hours a day for several months, something I'd never done on the trumpet. Uh, just absolutely fell in love with the instrument and the idea of the instrument. Um, and then a week after I had that epiphany uh, about Switching from trumpet to cello, uh, I had an audition here at Indiana, and I came here and auditioned for conducting. 
I was actually accepted here uh, on the wait list for the master's program back in 2004. I didn't get my acceptance letter until the end of July. Uh, at the time, I'd been offered a job working as an actor in Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, I was going to stay on for a year as a house actor, and I was going to go on tour with a show called Forever Plaid. Uh, it's a four-man uh, musical theater show. And uh, the letter came, and I was very conflicted. I thought, well, you know, maybe I can stay here in New Hampshire and make some money, do some acting, be active in the theater. Uh, you know, I will go into debt going to grad school. And my wife said, that's, <laughs> that's the dumbest thing you've said in a long time. You should go to school. Theater people are crazy. You know, you're just going to go nuts in the theater. So that's why I'm here in Indiana. <laughs> so to make a long story much, much longer, uh, I started the master's in 2004 here, studying with Thomas Baldner and Imre Paolo. I finished that in 2006. Then within a year, I had three jobs in Indiana. I was working as the assistant conductor with Columbus, Indiana Philharmonic. Uh, David Bowden's the music director there still. Uh, I was the conducting fellow with Indianapolis Symphony, and in 2007, I started as music director of Bloomington Symphony. So we've stayed. Uh, and then in 2009, uh, one day my wife said, are you going to apply for a doctorate degree because you're still not busy enough, you don't have enough to do? <laughs> so I did, and uh, now I'm finishing up that doctor of music degree at IU. So you've been very busy. Yeah. Are you uh, still trying to play the cello too? The cello, uh, less so. I, um, I'm actually back to the trumpet these days. I'm playing about 20, 30 minutes a day. Because I'm thinking about intonation, uh, as a wind player or a brass player, the musicians who play those instruments are taught about intonation uh, very differently from the way string players are taught about intonation. And it wasn't until I started playing the cello that I realized I couldn't hear anything about sharp or flat, just basically out of tune. Uh, and so now I'm really trying to write a treatise on intonation for wind, wind players uh, about uh, the way to think about whether you're in tune and out of tune, how to hear it, that sort of thing. Uh, that's mostly influenced by what I've learned as a bad amateur cellist. And you took, did you take voice lessons along the way? Because I know you sing. You know, I don't think I've ever had a voice lesson. I have been singing for a long time. Most of my early musical education came from the Methodist Church. Uh, I grew up uh, singing in kids' choirs and youth choirs at the church uh, and had a great church music director who supported me uh, all the time that I would bring the trumpet to services every Sunday and improvise desk hands with hymns and I had a lot of fun uh, making church music. Um, sang in choirs in high school, sang in choirs all the way through college. Um, and then I, I had small roles in New Hampshire opera uh, and that sort of thing. And then when I came to IU, I sang in the contemporary vocal ensemble for three years. So it's always been really important to me. But no, I've never had specific vocal lessons. Well, we should take a little break in our conversation for some music. And you've come with several uh, right. selections, and one is the uh, Montague and Capulet right. section from Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet. This piece is really important to me. Um, for people who were at the last Bloomington Symphony concert back in April, I, I told the story very briefly. This piece is the reason I'm a musician now. 
that when I was 15 or 16, the Russian National Orchestra came to town in Toledo, Ohio, and my mother saw it in the newspaper and said, Charlie, would you like to go to this concert? We can get tickets. And we, I remember we went to Thackeray's Bookstore, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, and bought tickets uh, and went and sat in the Peristyle, which is a beautiful theater at the Toledo Art Museum, uh, sat in the front row for this concert. Uh, it was the first concert I'd ever been to where orchestra came in, they sat down, they tuned, conductor walked out, nobody talked, they just started into music. Uh, and what they played was this, this first movement from Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet Suite. Uh, and I was hooked from the first few measures. I knew that that's what I wanted to spend my life doing. Uh, it was making music this way and feeling this kind of power of emotion and expression and art. We have just heard the Montague and Capulet section from the ballet Romeo and Juliet by Prokofiev, one of the favorites of our guest, Charles Latshaw. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Charles, you, you said you came to IU to study conducting. How mm -hmm. do you study conducting? <laughs> it's, it's a mysterious process. There, there's no science uh, to conducting. I've been very fortunate at IU that I've had four different principal teachers in, in the years that I've been here. I've, I've been in, in Bloomington now for nine years. I was an active student at IU for five of those. Uh, that I started with Thomas Baldner, uh, and Thomas Baldner has a very long history in conducting that goes way back to you know his father playing in the Berlin Philharmonic you know before the the World War II, uh, and I studied with Imre Paolo, uh, and the two of them had very different ideas about how a conductor turns physical visual gestures into music. Um, I remember having long lessons with, with Professor Baldner where we talked about which direction do I hold the hand? Do I hold it as if I'm shaking hands with the thumb on the top or do I hold it uh, with my hand palm to the floor and, and the, the back of my hand up so that there's a straight downward motion? Uh, Mr. Baldner very firmly believed the latter was, was important. Uh, whereas Imre Paolo would would look at that kind of discussion and say, oh, none of that matters. Just wiggle something and it will come out just fine. Uh, and then 
Imre Paolo left in 2005. He's now uh, director of orchestras at the Sydney Conservatory. Uh, and Professor Baldner has since retired. And I, when I came back for the doctorate, I was studying with David Efron uh, and Arthur Fagan, who are very similar to one another, I think, in the way they they feel about music and the way they think about music. But they both have different ideas about the physical gesture. Uh, they have different ideas about how one piece might be conducted, you know, with two beats per the bar or another in four. What that's given me is the freedom to be myself, that uh, I'm so grateful to have these four different teachers with so many different ideas because one will tell me to do it in two and the other to do it in four. I can't compromise and do it in three. I have to pick. And then I have to come up with a reason that works for me why I'm going to do it in two or four. Uh, it's given me that independence of thought, and it's helped me become a very good teacher of myself when I get away from school, that I think about a piece, and I think about how each of those four people might have done it, uh, and then I, I find what works for me. Well, this freedom to be yourself, I was going to ask, uh, you're a very high-energy guy on stage, mm. so, uh, and I know you much more as a performer, as a conductor, than in private life. Uh, is that you up there or, or are you putting on a performance or, or are you trying to communicate something special? Uh, you're very high energy. I've told a lot of people when I'm teaching conducting or when I'm teaching music, I, I tell a lot of people that performing orchestral music isn't much different from acting. And that's mostly true, that the idea is that in acting, the playwright has something that he or she wants to get across to the audience, and they're doing it through words and action and gesture, and composers are doing the same thing. They have something they need to get across, and it's our job to embody what they need to get across. But that being said, the way I feel about the piece while we're performing it is completely genuine. Um, you know, we, we did... Uh, well, we just played the Prokofiev Romeo and Juliet in April, uh, and at the end of the suite that we put together, when we finished the end of Death of Tybalt, I felt as though I'd been stabbed. You know, there are 15 large, uh, just bang, bang, bang kind of sounds in there. I felt as though I'd been stabbed 15 times. So it's, it's real and it's genuine, the way I feel about the music. And I think that's what I'm trying to get across to the audience and to the orchestra is that it's not enough to just play the right note at the right time. Uh, it's not enough to play the right note at the right time at the right volume. And it's not enough to play the right note at the right time at the right volume with the same articulation. as that. There has to be a meaning behind it. Uh, otherwise, they're just notes. They're just black dots on a page. And so I want the orchestra to feel something powerfully about every single note, and I want the audience to have opinions about they, what, what they heard. For me, one of the greatest experiences, uh, you mentioned I, I had a, a fellowship with Vienna Philharmonic back in 2007. Uh, I was at the Salzburg Festival, and uh, Daniel Barenboim was doing a concert with the West East Devon Orchestra, this orchestra of, of students on sort of both sides of the political issue in Palestine. They played uh, Schoenberg's variations for orchestra, and the audience hated it. The audience actually booed the performance. Mm. What an amazing experience that the audience not only listened, but they had an opinion. It was a negative opinion, and they expressed it honestly. 
that to me was thrilling. I mean, it was really invigorating. I would love to be in an audience where there was a premiere of a new piece of music and most of the audience is applauding, but there's one person yelling boo because that person was profoundly affected in the opposite way. That's the person I want to go talk to and ask their opinion and, and discuss how they felt about the show. It happens, but most people are sort of polite. Uh, right. There's there's definitely a politeness to applause. Yeah. Um, and I think you've seen it. You've been to some of the concerts that oftentimes when the audience is applauding, I like to try to direct where the applause is actually aimed. Because sometimes I think people applaud just because they feel like that's what they're supposed to do at the end of the show. But I love to pick up the score and, and hold up the score and sort of direct some of that applause to Mr. Prokofiev in the case of Romeo and Juliet or when we played Mahler's first symphony. You know, it's – I hope we're applauding at least in part for the composer even if the composer isn't there. Uh, I'd like to direct the applause toward the musicians who, who did the work. How do you select repertoire? Uh, I mean, you have to deal with your players, what they're capable of, and then you have to think about the audience. The big problem is that there's there's far too much good music in the world, uh, and it's hard to to make limitations. Um, the thing that stuck well with me was I read George Schulte's memoirs. George was a uh, longtime conductor of Chicago Symphony, among other things. He talks about when he met Igor Stravinsky that Stravinsky's desk was lined up the way his music is, that his desk was perfectly clean and the things on the desk were lined up perfectly in order and he wrote in colored pencils, red notes and blue notes and yellow notes and the colored pencils were all perfectly sharpened to the same length and they were lined up on his desk. And Stravinsky said that when he sits down to compose, he has to impose rules on himself or he's never going to be able to do anything. If there are no rules, then he's crippled by the the infinite possibility. So when I'm choosing pieces uh, for a concert, I impose arbitrary rules on myself uh, for a number of reasons. One, it limits the vast infinite pool of great repertoire. Uh, two, it forces me to go out and find pieces that I might not otherwise listen to because I'm looking for something to go together. Uh, and sometimes I give myself challenges, you know, uh, living in Indiana. I, I thought, I wonder if I can write a whole program of music about corn uh, or soybeans, you know, um, and set out to find pieces that work. Uh, I like that kind of idea. Um, so you've come to a, a few of our concerts that have themes behind them. Um, there's one uh, that we did at the beginning of this past season called Mustaches and Melodies that was all music by composers who had great mustaches. So I sat down to make a list of composers I could think of who had mustaches. Uh, Foray and Elgar. Frank Zappa has a great mustache. Uh, you know, John Philip Sousa uh, made this huge collection of, of ideas uh, and then sat down to put together pieces that would fit together in some other way. So what we ended up with was Foray's Suite from Dolly, um, 
the Brahms Academic Festival Overture and the the Dvorak Symphony Number no. Eight. So all three composers had great mustaches. Uh, and then the Academic Festival Overture and Dvorak Eight are both based on old folk tunes that were usually sung with beer steins swinging in their hands. And so I love to make those kind of connections. Uh, I love to put together programs that have uh, all pieces in the same key. Uh, we never play those concerts, but I, I like the challenge. Uh, I think a great concert would be Coriolan Overture, uh, Beethoven's First Piano Concerto, and uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. You know, do things all in C minor. Um, we did a concert a few years ago that had uh, uh, a Weber Clarinet Concerto, Magic Flute Overture, and Brahms One um, that were all in keys that had three flats. You know, that kind of thing fascinates me, those little hidden ideas. Now, I sat in on one of your rehearsals once, so, but I'd like you, for our listeners, would you take us to the studio or the place where you rehearse? And what happens? What are you trying to accomplish? Well, it, it depends on where we are in the rehearsal process. Uh, the first rehearsal is the same with with I think any orchestra at any level, is we put the piece on the stands and we play it down. Uh, because as much as I go through a piece and I prepare and plan for weeks and months and, and many, many hours in advance before the rehearsal, I can't predict with any great certainty what's going to go well and what isn't. So we play it down and we find out what the problems really are. Then we turn around and we start again, uh, usually from the beginning, this is in the first rehearsal. Uh, and we start playing again and figure out what's still a problem. Because the majority of problems fix themselves the second time through. They're either an issue of concentration or familiarity or the musicians just need a context. They need to get through the whole piece and discover what the size and, and the whole idea of the piece is about before they understand the minutia uh, that we're rehearsing. Uh, and then the rest of the rehearsal process is much the same. It's figuring out where the problems are uh, and then finding ways to help address them uh, and never, ever giving up on anything. That uh, Somebody asked me a while back, you know, how do you get such results out, out of an amateur orchestra? And I said, I, I figure out what's not going very well and I ask for it to be better. <laughs> and as long as I keep asking, it continues to get better. I think the... Performances that aren't great are where people have stopped asking. They've stopped asking for it to be better or stopped trying to figure out how to to improve things. Well, you talked earlier about your uh, childhood and about your interests being non-classical music. Uh, and one of the pieces that you brought with you today is non-classical. Mm -hmm. Uh, would you tell us about it? Every once in a while, somebody will ask me, what do you listen to in the car? Uh, and for the most part, I don't listen to any music in the car, partly because I'm so distracted. Uh, I'll just end up conducting in the car and end up off the road. My, my wife can't stand it when I talk about a piece in the car because I end up conducting. And, you know, usually I, it's hard to keep at least one hand on the wheel. Uh, but when I do listen to music in the car or when I do listen to music um, – that I'm not actively studying. Uh, there's one musician I come back to a lot for the last couple of years, and her name is Ingrid Michelson. Uh, Ingrid Michelson is uh, 
I'm not sure what you'd call her, an, an independent singer-songwriter of sorts. Um, most people have heard her lately on Target commercials. Target's been licensing a bunch of her songs uh, for commercials. Uh, Ingrid fascinates me as a musician. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, when we play this track, it's a, a tune called Parachute. What fascinates me is the way she plays with rhythm, the way a rhythm will come back again and again and, and constantly be mutated or won't line up with a bar and she'll keep sort of repeating it through. Uh, I'm fascinated with wordplay and she also has um, a voice that is quite actually you know, unique that I don't think anybody else could be Ingrid Michaelson uh, with any sort of authority. Um, anyway, uh, it's, it's just a musician that I have a great musical crush on. Songwriter Ingrid Michaelson, uh, a choice of our guest in the studio, Charles Latshaw. I'm interested in your efforts to make audiences more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of that I see in the program note, uh, the things you write for the program book. You also talked about this season having been one where we could clap when we felt like it. Uh, <laughs> I know that's been a pet peeve for you. <laughs> well, it's been a little bit of a problem for me. Uh, talk about that. Right. And, and how, do you think you've succeeded in making audiences more comfortable then? I think we're getting somewhere. First of all, I don't write the program notes anymore. That I used to write the program notes, but well, now you write pieces for the program book. Uh, yes, I do. I do yeah. sometimes. Uh, I wrote... A few seasons ago, there there was uh, a couple of page essay on what exactly a conductor does. I want to get back to that. Cause yeah, it sure. Is interesting. Um, and and sometimes I, I put in. I had a, a while back just a basic glossary of musical terms, so that if you come to a concert and you don't know the difference between allegro and adagio, you can at least kind of look these up and get an understanding. Uh, I. That goes into even that in programs. You know, when we play a symphony, we tend to write the 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 names of each movement with just the Italian tempo markings, I'd love to just put those in English. I, I think the idea when a composer, you know, left a, a movement as just allegro non troppo, he meant that his audience was going to understand that that meant fast but not too fast. But if you actually write fast but not too fast, that makes a lot more sense to people uh, and and hopefully they'll be more engaged. All of my efforts with audience get back to the idea that I want the audience to be engaged and to have an opinion. So we'll talk about clap when you feel like it. This comes from uh, 
uh, a marketing committee meeting we had a, a, about a year ago. Uh, what I like to do is is make programs with the orchestra committee um, that have thematic ideas behind them, keep those themes largely to myself, and then we take the programs to the marketing committee and say, marketing committee, let's figure out how to sell them. So then that's when we put titles on programs and figure out some other things we can add into a concert that won't detract from the music but will add to the experience. We were trying to come up with a season title. So last year was our 43rd season. Uh, I remember there was a lot of discussion about prime numbers and you know trying to find some sort of pun based on 43, uh, and we were just, you know, I like this meeting to go on for a long time where we start to get kind of loopy and just start tossing out crazy ideas. And there was some discussion about people clapping between movements. And I said, why don't we just call the whole season clap when you feel like it? I mean, who cares really when you clap? And that's the name that stuck. Uh, and it wasn't because I pushed it through. It's because I tossed it out as one idea uh, and then everybody voted for it. Actually, I voted against it, uh, my own idea, but I was the only one who voted against it uh, in that meeting. So the idea was that for me as a performer or as an audience member, there's nothing quite so uncomfortable as when the audience starts to applaud, say, after the first movement of a symphony, that something great has just happened, people are excited, or they've just woken up, and they want to show some appreciation. And the first thing that happens is other people in the audience shush them, or worse, the conductor will turn around and scowl at them. Many of the musicians will, you know, wave their bows trying to shush it. And when I think about the person who's just applauded, that person heard something they liked and they showed some appreciation. If we squelch that and if we make them feel awful for it, why would that person ever come back to another concert? So instead, you know, when that happens, I love to turn around and encourage more applause uh, because I think people want to. And composers who really did not want applause between movements would actively do something to prevent it. You know, Schumann's Third Symphony, where each of the movements runs one directly into another, actively prevents the applause. But the idea that we would sit quietly with, you know, with our hands in our laps and, you know, maybe just cough or unwrap a candy wrapper in between movements is, in the grand scheme of things, a new and sort of arbitrary rule, as far as I'm concerned. I think about the premiere of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. The audience went so wild after the second movement that they played it again before they moved on. Uh, I love that idea that people are engaged and, and they applaud when they want to. The first concert, that Mustaches uh, and Melodies concert, uh, was the only time where we actively encouraged the audience to applaud between movements. We, we said a little something at the beginning of the concert uh, and said, you know, if you like something, go ahead and applaud. What happened, though, was when we played Vorzak's Eighth Symphony, people started applauding in the middle of a movement. Uh, there's a, a violin solo uh, in in the second movement, and there's a, a flute solo in the in the fourth movement. And people heard it and applauded, like at any jazz show. Jazz concert. Right, yes. which I thought was astonishing, <laughs> especially in a slow movement. That, you know, a slow movement is where you expect many in the audience are starting to read their program notes or, you know, they're fumbling around. But they heard that violin solo. They liked it. They appreciated it. They applauded. I thought that was really great. 
But anyway, I I was reluctant to do the clap when you feel like it uh, uh, concert title because I didn't want to end up arguing the debate <laughs> for the entire year. Instead, my my feeling is really clap when you feel like it, and and we'll deal with that if it's an issue uh, later. And it hasn't been a problem. But the other big thing I've started doing that's really important to me to get audiences involved is uh, what we call chat with Charles. Uh, I mm. consider it to be a mid-concert lecture. Uh, almost any major orchestra you go to these days, you can go to a pre-concert lecture. That in the best case scenario, the pre-concert lecture is done by uh, a, a musicologist or a music historian in some other room. You sit down, you hear some examples maybe of what's going to be played, you hear some general history. Beethoven's Third Symphony uh, was originally dedicated to Napoleon, and then when Napoleon declared himself emperor, Beethoven removed it and just called it the Hero Symphony. I've hated those things for as long as I've ever attended them uh, because I don't feel like they have any particular relevance uh, to the concert. That They're all abstract. I don't care about a piece until I've heard it. I don't care about why it was written until I've heard it. So what we started doing two seasons ago with Bloomington Symphony uh, is that during intermission, I come out and talk about the pieces we've just heard and we've just played and how they relate, how they affect, and how uh, we can make connections to the pieces we're about to hear. Uh, And I think it's great uh, that we're talking about something we've just heard, so we're actively involved. We have an, an interest in it. It also um, helps me fill my time in intermission because I really can't stand intermission. I have a hard time sitting down and folding my hands for 15 minutes. That's just really hard for me. I don't like intermissions. Yeah. <laughs> right. Intermissions to reasons. me are really awkward but as an audience member. you do it member. so well. That, yeah. uh, I mean, it's almost exciting to listen to you. I hope you it is. You sing yeah. – you dance, yeah. you, you have the examples, and uh, what you say has been so well prepared in your mind. Right, but not scripted. It's no, all in. It's no. prepared in my mind, but not scripted, yeah. which is why I always end up talking over time, and our stage manager is always telling me to wrap it up. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we get to a final piece of music, you, you did this piece in, in the program book one year about what it takes to be a conductor. Mm-hmm. and. You say that you spend probably an hour of time for every one minute of music and right. preparation. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah. I, when people ask me why I'm a conductor, uh, you know, why did I choose to go into conducting instead of stay on the trumpet or try to become a better cellist or to continue acting, it's because conducting is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. It's the thing that no matter how hard I work at it, no matter how well I prepare a piece, no matter how well I think I understand a piece, no matter how carefully I think about the gesture and the physical aspect of what I'm going to do, no matter how much I think about the psychology of connecting the dots on the page to the expression that's going to come out, I'll never be good enough. And that really appeals to me that that I'm not good enough to... To have earned that spot in front of the orchestra telling everybody what to do. I'm not good enough to to represent the composer who's written this great masterwork. I'm not good enough to be the the connection between the composer and the audience. I love that idea that I can always do better and always strive more and work harder. So 
The way I prepare a score has a lot of steps to it, and the steps vary depending on how much time I have or how big the piece is. But I, let's say I'm going to prepare a new symphony or one that's new to me. First thing I do is just sit in an armchair and just read it like a novel. Just sit and read straight through it. Get a sense for how it's laid out on the page. Get a sense for the language the composer uses musically. Get a sense for the scope and the size. Um, a general sense of of feeling behind the piece. Uh, and then I go through and uh, I will uh, think about large form you know, is the first movement a sonata allegra form, the second movement a double variation, third a scherzo. Uh, and then I go through and start into minutia um, because working with tiny, tiny details helps me see the bigger picture. So if I'm taking a, a symphony by Dvorak, I go vertically down the page, look at every single chord, every single note, and I write down jazz chords at the bottom of, of the page. So, you know, A7, D minor... Uh, uh, G six four and then C. You know that I'm thinking about how it sounds harmonically, uh, and then I go through and mark the phrasing based on the harmonic changes. How long is each phrase? Four measures, six measures, eight measures, uh, because that gives an understanding of where the piece is going. Beethoven, for example, will write four measure phrases over and over and over again, and then when he wants a great crescendo, he makes it a six measure phrase because then he's got that extra 50% to go further, and that's what pulls you up out of your chair and builds the excitement. And so I count everything very carefully. Then I uh, figure out, I usually draw a big chart of the piece of the large form. You know, the first time we have the first theme, it takes 119 measures, and when it comes back, it's only 116 measures. Where did those three measures go? Uh, Brahms does this sort of thing all the time. He, he he won't recapitulate things exactly the same way he he uh, exposed them in the first place. And then I work uh, backward to the front. So I'll take the last phrase, read it, think about it, conduct it silently to myself, sing it while I conduct, uh, and then I'll take the last two phrases, or the last three phrases, the last page, the last four pages, and build it from the back to the front. Uh, it's a long process, uh, but by the end, um, I'm usually m madly in love with whatever the piece is because I've spent so much time with it. Well, one of the pieces you're going to do this coming season is the Tchaikovsky Fourth Symphony. <laughs> so for our final piece of music, you've chosen uh, the last part of that right. last movement. Uh, this gets back to the idea of uh, wanting audiences to have an opinion. So... Uh, the Tchaikovsky Fourth Symphony uh, is a piece that I conducted a year ago, and I chose to conduct it because it was something that I never really liked. Uh, it was a piece that I, I didn't understand. I thought uh, Tchaikovsky didn't have very much to say, and he took a long time to say it over and over and over again. So I, I chose to conduct it. I, I invested myself fully in it, and I worked on it, and now it's a piece that I'm just like I was mentioning a moment ago, I'm madly in love with. Uh, but I have a strong opinion about the musical aspects that I want to keep to myself but invite audience members to have their own opinion. So uh, Tchaikovsky said that the the plot of the symphony was 
he hoped very obvious the idea of the sword of Damocles hanging over your head, that no matter how hard you work, there's always crippling fate that's going to come crashing down on you. And and it happens several times in the piece that as soon as he builds up to something great and it becomes beautiful and wonderful and fun, then the trumpets come in and they just destroy everything again. So what I invite the audience to to have an opinion about is the last movement. First movement is long, 17 minutes, just this huge, crushing, powerful idea. I consider the end of the first movement to be just absolute nuclear apocalypse, just destruction and and death of dreams and hopes. Second movement, uh, I've always considered it as being, you know, one flower growing out of nuclear winter snow in the ground. Third movement is just fun. And then the fourth movement uh, sounds like a big party. It's a huge party, and it has a, a little Russian children's tune in the middle um, that you can look at this either two ways. And uh, Tchaikovsky, I think, left it a little bit ambiguous. You can see it as this great triumph of will over the the vagaries of fate. You can see it as this great hymn of optimism and excitement and party. Or you can see it as sort of a petulant temper tantrum of stomping your feet saying, if you're going to keep crushing my dreams, I'm going to pretend to be happy and I'm just going to go crazy. It's, I have a strong opinion that it's one or the other of those two ideas. Uh, and I I want audiences, we're going to play it at the end of next season with Bloomington Symphony. I want audience members to come away uh, with their own opinion. And when I perform it, I perform it with this strong idea I have but I still expect the audience to be split 50-50, uh, and, and I'd love to hear input from people on their opinions. Uh, we've really run out of time, <laughs> but I did want to ask you one thing. You, Where do you want to go from here? Um, my honest answer is I'd, I have unspecific musical career goals. I just want to be at a place where I can – continue to challenge myself to be at my best all the time uh, and with orchestras that challenge me to be at my best, uh, but also at a level where I still have something to contribute and give back uh, to the orchestras um, and help them be at their best. Well, you've, you're doing very well at that. <laughs> Thank Thanks, you. Charles Latshaw, our guest for Profiles, and this is Peter Jacoby. The program you just heard was recorded in May of 2013. 
Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.